It takes a keen eye to spot what lies out there in the African savanna. Sometimes it's the eye of a hunter, other times the eye of a predator. And today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're getting the perspective from the eye of an artist on an African safari. I'm Rick Steves. Today we'll meet Fred Krakowiak. He's a celebrated wildlife painter with a passion for Africa. Fred has assembled a striking collection of his paintings in a book that includes his detailed description of the safari experience. Everybody in the Jeep jumped up, and of course the guy's going, quiet, quiet. Well, how can you be quiet? Your heart's beating so fast, it's through your chest. As you'll hear, Fred has a real gift for describing the majesty of Africa. But sometimes in our travels, it's not lions and tigers and snakes we need to look out for, but hepatitis and malaria and TB. Later in the hour, we'll get a house call from Dr. Edward Chapnick. He heads the travel medicine department at a major medical facility in Brooklyn. It's safari time and health tips on today's Travel with Rick Steves. We're getting an artist's vision from Africa from an acclaimed wildlife painter today on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll hear what it's like to be an artist out in the savannah. And later in the hour, we'll look at some of the precautions you need to take when preparing to travel to the developing world, including Africa. The head of travel medicine at Maimonides Medical Center in New York City pays us a visit to help set the record straight on health issues in your travels. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. It's time for a safari in Africa. Now, there's lots of ways to take a safari in Africa. Today, we're doing it as an artist. In fact, we're talking about a book called Africa, an artist's safari. And the man who wrote it and filled it with his art is joining us, Fred Krakowiak. Fred, thanks for being with us. Nice to be here, Rick. As an artist, setting out to write a book filled with your art, why did you choose Africa? Well... For many years, I've painted animals, and I've always went to zoos and drawn animals, sketched animals, and I've always went to the safari conventions with one of my best friends who has traveled to Tanzania, and after listening to his stories, I knew I had to go to Africa and get down to see the, just look at the real souls of these animals as you look at them in their eyes, and that's why I picked Africa, and I've always painted animals about Africa. I love doing it. I just enjoyed so much paging through this book last night and just getting into it. And you've got a real passion for, I guess, what you just said, uh, looking into the eyes of these animals. On top of that, there's a lot of writing here, and you've made it uh, pretty clear you knew a lot about Africa and about safaris. It's a great look both at wildlife and what a safari is like in African culture. Were you a first-timer to Africa, or, or did you know Africa before you set out to write this book? No, this was the first time that I had ever visited Africa, and when I was there, I knew that I wanted to write the book. It was experiences that left my heart pounding every minute, and once you leave Africa, it does not leave you, and that's why I'm going to go again back this year. It's just the experiences that you have with any number of animals, the hippo, the lion, the elephant. And that's what I tried to share with people through not only my art, but with the book. So when you left, you you must have known you were going to make, you know, do some art. Did you know you were going to do this book? I knew I was going to do the book about three days into my safari. It was clear you had something to share from this experience. Oh, absolutely. It was one of the telling tales was I was canoeing down the Zambezi River. And as we're canoeing down the Zambezi River, the hippos are always there. Well, there was a hippo on the shore, and here's a hippo on the shore just grazing, and of course, the guide that you're with is telling you, Fred, be calm, slow down, give him a wide berth. I'm giving him a wide berth, and then all of a sudden, he looks up, and his home is the deep water, and we were told that at the beginning during orientation. Well, all of a sudden, this hippo decides he wants to go home, and he charges, lunging into the water. Now, this is a hippo that's about 14 feet long. They weigh about 7,000 pounds. The wake of the water is knocking the canoe, and the canoe's rocking back and forth, and I have my camera in my hand, and I'm taking pictures of the sky, and I'm taking pictures of the water and pictures of the front of the canoe. And in an instance, as the hippo is maybe three feet in front of me, I look at him, and I catch him with my camera, and he's looking at me with this eye as if to say, get out of my way, I'm going home. And at that moment, 
I, it was just such a, it was maybe a tenth of a second, but I just could feel the power of the hippo in, in Africa. And then fortunately for me, my oarsman was backpedaling as the, as the guide was screaming, backpedal, backpedal. And he was splashing me with water from the back and the hippo was getting me with water from the front. And I got four or five great pictures, but it's that one where I caught his eye looking right at me. And as he went into the deep water and we were passing him, I knew right then, I said, I'm going to share this with everyone. Wow. You're an artist. You had to have the camera just practically to grab that image. You knew then you had an image that you could take back to camp and sketch and paint. Is that the deal? Absolutely. And that happened to be just at one point in time when that hippo, I was able to catch that eye. But there was other events for instance, when I, an elephant made a mock charge and he came rushing through the brush, my guide had positioned me in a spot to make sure I got good pictures. And he said, he'll probably stay 20 yards from you or 10 yards. Don't worry. Well, the elephant is there and the elephant's ears are coming out and he's doing this mock charge and his trunk, his trunk is tucked under and you can hear him screeching and you can smell the musk in the air, and you can see the tusk. Now, the largest tusk in Africa, I believe, at one time were 11 feet and weighed 293 pounds, but these tusks were certainly not that large, but they were there and gleaming in the sunlight. And then, all of a sudden, the elephant made another charge, and now he's maybe six feet in front of me, and his right foot is coming up and kicking dust, and dust is bouncing off my forehead and pebbles are bouncing off the lens of the camera. And I look back to the guide and I look at Humphrey and Humphrey goes, Fred, be calm, be calm. You cannot move. And I'm looking at him saying, are you kidding me? And I turn back around. And at that point, I couldn't take a picture because he was so huge, 11 feet tall, you know, 11 feet when you're kneeling down, they look like a skyscraper. So at that point, I just set the camera down and I had to embed that picture in my mind. So I went, when I went back to camp, I sketched it immediately. And, and wow. quite often when I do elephants, I think of that moment and I can still see him with his eyes gleaming. And right before he turned away, he looked back as if to say, this is my country. I'm letting you visit it be good. <laughs> now, Fred, you said mock charge. Did I hear that right? Was that a mock yes. charge? What is a mock charge? That doesn't sound like much of a mock charge to me. <laughs> well, the elephants generally make mock charges, and mock charges are charges where they come at you, and they're actually threatening you. But animals, all types of animals, crocodiles, hippos, lions, they all have this body language. And the body language of an elephant is when they're making a mock charge, you cannot run. You must hold your ground. So your guide's and, telling you, hold steady, hold steady. He's not going to tromp on you. Yes. And, of course, the guide also does have a gun just in case. But, <laughs> you know, I, I'm thinking to myself, this guy's only six. He was actually six paces away. We walked off from where I was kneeling to where his foot was kicking the dirt up into my face. And... You have to trust your guide, and you have to trust your guide because not only is he trying to keep you out of harm's way, but you learn so much about Africa and the animals in their body language. And so I knew that the elephant was just telling me, be respectful, wow. and that I'm the one wow. that, who's the master here. You are not. Boy, when you said in the beginning of your book it was a life-changing experience, it sounds like a cliche, but it, it really was. You've come home impacted by this experience. Oh, the experience was tremendous and the stories you hear from the guides and again as i mentioned earlier the body language you learn from the various animals we've all seen a lion and right. but there must be something about the majesty of seeing a lion in the wild when you see a lion in the wild they are so majestic there was one time at a camp here we are at a camp it's in the evening it's dusk and lions are nocturnal they move around quite a bit in the evening, and their manes are huge. Nine inches long, the mane of a lion will grow to nine inches in the Kalahari, as an example, and their manes are full. And the manes in Botswana and Zimbabwe, they're a little more shredded because they run through the bush. But here we are in the Savuti Channel of Botswana, and here's a lion, and it's dusk, and he's sitting there so majestically, and we're looking at him, and he was... It was a coalition of four lions that controlled the Savuti Channel at this time when we were there. And he stood up, and he began walking towards us. And our guide says, do not move your hands outside the jeep. 
keep your hands inside the Jeep and all appendages. And so the lion, and of course, you he walked right by the Jeep. I could have stuck my hand out. It was so tempting to run my fingers through his hair. But of course, you listen to your guide. You do not do anything but hold your breath. And all of a sudden, the lion roars. I mean, makes a sound, just a huge roar. Everybody in the Jeep jumped up. And of course, the guy's going, quiet, quiet. Well, how can you be quiet? Your heart's beating so fast, it's through your chest. And then he makes these guttural sounds, and the guide said he's trying to reach his brother. That roar that you hear will actually travel five to six miles through the channel. And so it's so spectacular, and it's just an amazing event. I'm, I'm speaking with Fred Krakowiak, and Fred's uh, painting some pictures from a book that he wrote called Africa and Artist Safari. Now, as an artist, you have to both have experiences and then observe those experiences with a very special eye. Of course, you go on a safari, you're creating these powerful visual experiences and emotional experiences that you can capture on the canvas. What about observation techniques? I would imagine a lot of tourists go on a safari and, and they, don't, they don't sense it, they don't observe it with the, the keen eye that you did. What, what's some tips there? Well... One thing you want to notice is animals are always in motion. Even if a lion is sleeping, you can look at a lion, which is one of my favorite animals, and you look at the lion, you look at his face and his cheekbones, and if he has high cheekbones and they're wide, that's just a picture of a lion that's dominant. And a lion's muzzle is usually soft, but if you watch a lion's muzzle as it goes up, it's a very thick muzzle as it goes up to its eyebrows, and it's very thick and wide. And a lion's chin, very unique. People look at a lion or a cat, and they look at a lion, and they think a lion's chin is like a semicircle. That's not true. A lion's chin is square. And the reason a lion's chin is square is because when a lion grabs onto its prey, it has a locking mechanism, and that square chin helps it lock down so that it won't let loose of its prey. And so when you're looking at any animal, and I'm just picking a lion, you can look at it and just say, gosh, how look at the strength in that square chin. Look at those cheekbones. Look at the muzzle and just get the features of the animal and that will tell you a lot about it. Seven seven three 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 rick is our phone number. Radio at ricksteves.com is the email address. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. Kaji Meitame Oledapash, Aingwa Maasai Land, Naisafiri Oryx Steve. That's in my Maasai language. My name is Meitame Oledapash. I'm from Maasai Land in Kenya, and I travel with Rick Steve. 
kaji meitemei oledapash naingua masailand naisafiri orich steve I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Fred Krakowiak, and Fred has written a book called Africa, an Artist Safari. Fred, you are, I understand, transitioning from being a full-time stockbroker to being a full-time artist. And here you are, a rookie in Africa, and you've got this incredible skills for observation. First of all, what, a, what an exciting time in your life to be flipping over from a, a stockbroker to an artist, going on safari and capturing these scenes. What's that like? Fortunately for me, one of my best friends is a professional hunter in Tanzania, and he's always taken me to the safari conventions. But we're like Mutt and Jeff. I'm not a hunter. I'm a tree hugger. And so I always give him grief about his activities. But nevertheless, I've been exposed to the safari and to Africa, and I've just felt this passion because I've always been an artist. I love to draw, and I love to go outside the lines. Financial planning and stockbroker, you're inside a box and you're always crossing T's and dotting I's. In art, you have the ability to expand and to expose yourself to, to the world and draw and paint. It's great. Fred, we've been talking about catching action. And when you're on a safari, you want to catch action and hope that it's just a mock charge. As an artist, you have a special technique which really lends itself to catching action. You're pretty enthusiastic about this technique called sumi. Describe that to us. Sumi is an ancient art developed in China centuries ago, and it was taught to me by an oriental master. And sumi is a very unique art. It's actually Chinese calligraphy, and it allows you to create motion. There are a number of ways to paint on sumi or paint on rice paper, and that's what you're painting on is rice paper. And the rice paper that I paint on is ching pea. Ching pea is very thin. It's like dropping ink on tissue paper. And if you can imagine dropping ink on tissue paper, it just goes wherever it wants to go. And the nice thing about that is when you're doing that, you have to move very fast because when it's down, it's it's there. And you can create action. And a lot of times you may not get the shoulder in just the right spot, or you may not get the cheekbone just right. But just by creating the flick of a brush and allowing the the brush to dance and the ink to sing, it will create a hopefully a good picture. Well, I'm looking at a painting of yours of an elephant coming right at me. And he is not just coming at me. He is lumbering. And it must be because of this sumi technique that you use, because it does put a lot of action in there. It does put action. And, and that's why, again, I love to use sumi. And I quite honestly use sumi in almost every piece of art that I create. I will do a sumi painting first to get that action, because that's what it's all about. I've never seen an animal stand still. You give some just good background on African wildlife and uh, the reality of going on a safari. Talk about hyenas being some of the fastest animals and their bloody laugh. Uh, did you actually see a hyena killing anything, or did you hear that bloody laugh? We actually saw a hyena come upon a Cape buffalo. A pride of lions had just finished off a Cape buffalo. And, of course, after the Cape buffalo's dead and the bones were there, then comes the cleanup crew, and the hyena is part of the cleanup crew, and the hyena come in. And the hyena actually, I don't know if many of you people know this, but hyenas, when they um, go to the bathroom, uh, they're excretion is white. Their poop is white. And that's because their jaw bones are so square. So when you do a piece of art for a hyena, you look at the jaw. The jaw is so strong that it actually eats the bones and that digests the bones. And that's why it's white. So a hyena, when they come in as a cleanup crew and they come in also, then comes the vultures. But the hyenas, they're very, very unique animals as part of the cleanup crew. And their laugh is not really a laugh then, huh? No, it's more of a bark, more of a high-pitched bark. And there are actually the hyenas will compete with lions for the food. And if the hyenas outnumber the lions, the hyenas will actually run the lions off. Wow. And there was actually, back in the 1980s, a, a lion by the name of Nichuenya, which means he who greets with fire. And Nichuenya was, uh, he had a brother, and his brother was called Menduva. Nichuenya and Manduva, they controlled the Savuti Channel in the 1980s for a handful of years. But Nichuenya would love to chase hyenas. And he'd chase hyenas for 100, 200, 300, 500 yards and try to catch them. 
and in turn hyenas would always tease him so there was always great competition between hyenas and lions so the, the lions make the kill and the hyenas get the dinner sometimes sometimes that's the way it goes in the wild you know when i was enjoying your book the rivers had a powerful impression on you i don't think of rivers when i think of africa but take me to a great river in africa the Zambezi River, we canoe down the Zambezi River, and the Zambezi River is on the, along the northern border of Zimbabwe. And when you're canoeing down the Zambezi River, it's, it's sometimes it's a mile wide. And during your orientation, you have to listen to these guides because they tell you, I have had a, the opportunity to have an excellent guide, but they tell you what to do. And one of the things you have to do canoeing down the river is tap the canoe. And you wonder, why am I tapping this canoe? Well, you're tapping the canoe because the hippos, they are the king of the river. And the hippos are underwater many, quite often. And if they hear the tap, they know you're there. If you don't tap, they could come up and tip your canoe and then you're in real trouble. And as I said earlier, each animal has its own body language. And so you never want to have a hippopotamus mad at you because we've seen them mad going down the river. And when they open their mouths, they're not, yawning. They're actually telling you, this is my territory. Look at the size of my incisors. These things can cut that canoe in half. Move along. And... <laughs> I'll be right along. I'll move along. No, yeah. thank you. <laughs> oh, absolutely. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're talking with Fred Krakowiak. Fred's written a, a fascinating book called Africa, an Artist Safari. Fred, another big part of a safari is Africa at night. Oh, Africa at night is spectacular. And many people think at night that you're ready to go to bed, and that's not the case at all. If you want to rest on safari, you rest in the afternoon. And at night when you go out, that's when the lions are there, and the lions are nocturnal. And many of the lions, as an example, they, they go nomadic because when a lion turns the age of three, a male lion turns three years old, the dominant male kicks them out. And those lions go nomadic. And so those lions have to roam around until they get stronger and then find an older male to take over his territory. So at night you see these nomadic lions and you see all the beads of eyes out there watching the lions. You see the tall ones and the, even the smaller eyes. Uh, it could be anything from an antelope or an impala to a giraffe watching lions. And it's, it's just very strong, very powerful to follow them at night. Fred, how long was this safari that you were on? How many days? Uh, we were there for three weeks. So you had uh, three weeks to get all this material for this book. It must have been a good safari. Was it an artist's tour, or was it a typical tour, or did you hire your own private guide so you could have all these experiences? There were five of us that went, and we had our own private tour, and on half of it, we took my 80-year-old aunt because she had never been to Africa, and I promised her that she could go, and she actually had a spectacular time. We were actually in the Savuti Channel. They have a hide, and the logs are piled on top of each other, and there's a watering hole, and you're about 10 feet away from this watering hole. And in the morning, the warthogs come in and get their water, and the antelope come in, and then there's a changing of the guard, and the zebras come in, and then the wildebeest, and then at noon come the elephants. And here's my aunt in this hide, and she's 80 years old, and she's just awestruck. And this elephant turns around and brings his nose up and takes his trunk over the hide and starts looking and sniffing my aunt. I happened to be right behind her, and you could smell the musk. You could look at the dripping of the water, the beads of water from his nostrils, and you could see the pink in his nostrils, and he's just getting a scent of my aunt, and I'm holding her because she's about ready to faint, and I'm saying, just don't move. You're fine, and then he turns back around, and she turned around, and she's still today. She's 82 and talks about that. Great experience. Oh, exactly. It's hard to even describe. I don't know if I described it properly, but it was spectacular. I was there. I was there. I'm just getting off the floor right now. The meals, when you describe the meals, it sounds like a tour brochure. I mean, uh, great food in the middle of nowhere. Oh, the food. The food is very good. You have lamb and you have chicken and you have oxtail soup. And really, the only native animal that I believe that you are served is a crocodile tail. And, of course, everything tastes like chicken, even crocodile tail. So, if, <laughs> so they would go out and get crocodile tail for dinner, huh? Your guides. Yes, we, we had that. It was very, very good. And so you the, had, food the, is, the guides had quite an impression on you, too. It sounds like you had guides that had good sensitivity for what you were comfortable mm -hmm. with and what you wanted to, how you wanted to get out of your comfort zone as well. 
Actually, when we landed in the uh, Little Mambo, another camp in Botswana, we had a guide, and we wanted to track rhino. And he kept looking at us, do you want to track rhino? And he was so good. When we tracked rhino, he'd show us the track, and these guides are spectacular. He could look at a, a brush or even some trees that are out there, and he'd say, he'd go up and go, oh, the rhino just went by here, or the rhino went by here. And he took us three days, and then once, and I'm making this story somewhat quicker, but on the third day, we found some moisture, and he picks up the moisture, and he smells it, and it happened to be the urine of this rhino. And he, he could tell from the acidity, from the smell, that it had only been there in the last 15 minutes. And we were so fortunate that finally, on the third day, we found a rhino, and his name was Thompson, and he had this huge smile, and he goes, I've got him, and not only did we find one rhino, but it was the mother of a seven-month-old baby they had named Valentine. It sounds exciting. Now, it sounds like this is a top-end safari. I mean, you really had quality experience here, and it's a small group with great guides, great food. They're running all over the place with you, uh, jeeps and flights and boats and so on. If somebody wants to go on a safari, but a real top-end safari like this, where it's like a private tour almost with a small group of people, mm -hmm. if you've got $8,000, $4,000 a week, basically, uh, $8,000 per person, and you get five or six people together, can you really have the ultimate safari experience? Uh, you can. Now, understand that you can pick your camps, and the camps that you pick, one reason that ours may have been a little less uh, than most when we did the canoe trip is that when you're doing the canoe trip, you're staying in tents, and you're taking what they call bucket showers. So you've got a gallon and a half of water in a bucket with a drop cloth around you, and you use that gallon and a half of water to shower, and that's about it. Right. We also stayed in higher-end camps where we had very nice accommodations and very nice tents, and they had their own shower and their own bathroom. So depending on the camp that you are going to be at, that really depends on what type of expense you're going to incur. Fred, was there anything about safari tourism that really hurt your artist's soul, things that you saw that made you cringe? Um, the, the, when I was out on safari, there was nothing that really made me upset because one thing that I'm concerned with is the conservation efforts that are going on. I, I truly believe that unless we make a conscientious effort that we're not going to have animals like the lions and the rhinos in the wild because they are certainly becoming more and more endangered, even the cheetah. Um, and that's I'm going to find that to be very hard to take, and that's why I want to go out now and go on the safaris that I take and go out into the wild, into the bush, where there are no fences and no boundaries, and see mm -hmm. these animals as they existed for the last hundreds and thousands of years. Well, you mentioned that in your book that you were inspired, um, sadly, to document what you think is a vanishing slice of nature. It is a vanishing slice of nature. In some of the parts of the continent where there used to be many, many black rhino as an example. Now the black rhino is its very highly endangered. It one day could be extinct, and I would hate to have that happen. We're talking with Fred Krakowiak. Fred has written a book called Africa, an Artist Safari. We have Karen on the line in Evansville, Indiana. Hi, Karen. Thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. You getting some ideas about a safari talking to Fred here? Absolutely. In fact, um, my husband has wanted to go to Kenya on safari for the last 40 years, and we finally have made plans to go. But I have a question. Um, we're excited about going, but with the recent unrest in Kenya and in other countries there in Africa, we're kind of wondering what sources should we take a look at to help guide us as we make our go-no-go no -go decision and finalize our trip? What I would highly recommend is that you concentrate on looking at working with your travel agent. Mm -hmm. One thing I will tell you right now, because I am going to Rwanda in August of this year to see the gorillas, and that's very close to Kenya. So I have been in contact with my travel agent and the people that I talk to in Africa, and they say that Nairobi is a huge city and that most of the unrest is fairly located in one area. But I would make sure that you talk with your travel agent because they 
are in constant contact back and forth. It's very similar to Zimbabwe. When I went to Zimbabwe, people were concerned, saying, Fred, you know, the United States doesn't get along with Zimbabwe, and their dictator, Mugabe, is just that, a dictator. Aren't you concerned? Well, it's kind of, it's very difficult because as as an American, you don't want to support Mugabe, but on the other hand, they live off of tourism. The only way to support the people there is by going there and visiting them. And when you go there and you see how well they treat you and you look in their eyes and they're so happy to see you. When I was there talking to the Zimbabweans, I would do paintings, I would do charcoal sketches, and I would I would give them to some of the Zimbabweans just because I knew that they wouldn't hang them on the wall. I knew that they were going to go sell them, but I knew that that would also help them very much. And I think if I was you, I would not postpone my trip unless your travel agent absolutely said, hey, it's unsafe. Karen, thanks for your call. Thank you. So, Fred, I guess the, the point is you can get the essential safari experience in a number of countries and check in with your travel agent and, and uh, be sure where you're going is stable. And if it's not, there are alternative countries that might be more stable. Right. Actually, this safari that we have coming up, we also do have alternative plans, just as we did uh, with the uh, previous one. That makes sense. Fred, in your book, you've got some practical tips, especially for an artist heading off on a safari. What's the value of an artist's journal that you mentioned? Oh, the value is, it's immeasurable. The nice thing about having a journal is you can document what happens every day with either a sketch or what happened to you. One or two words with a sketch is invaluable when you get back home and you're starting to draw or paint and you think, oh, yes, that elephant came at me with weathered ears. You could see the tearing ah, of so the So it's bottom. a memory jogger. I mean, weathered yes. ears, just that. Weathered ears, and you quickly sketch a little bit of that, and then you can incorporate that in, into your final piece of art. What about, you were very emphatic about the quality binoculars. Don't just bring binoculars, but, but special binoculars. You need quality binoculars because when you're in camp or whether you're out of camp, when you're out there, you want to look and you want to get the features that I talked about earlier. You're not going to get those features with just a poor set of binoculars. You need good binoculars to make sure that you can get the features of an animal because that's what counts. Fred, you could have gone to a lot of places on this planet to do your art. You chose Africa. Was that a good choice? Africa is raw. It's simple. It is a great place for an artist, and I can't think of anywhere else I'd rather paint. Fred Krakowiak, author of Africa, an artist safari, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you. If Fred's stories have you ready to head out to Africa on a safari yourself, sit tight. Up next, travel medicine and infectious disease expert Dr. Edward Chapnick joins us for a dose of what you need to know before traveling to the developing world, including how to keep yourself healthy on the plane ride over. 877-333-RICK. That's our phone number at Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're talking travel and health. Anywhere we travel, we need to be smart about maintaining our health. And we're joined by Dr. Edward Chapnick, who's the director of the Division of Infectious Diseases and the head of the Travel Medicine Program at Maimonides Medical Center in New York City. Uh, Dr. Chapnick, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. On this segment, I'd like to kind of look at uh, health on the road, not what you do before your trip, but once you get over there. And it all starts off with uh, tricks to stay healthy on the airplane. A lot of people are concerned about their health on that 8- or 10-hour ride over to Europe or uh, Asia or whatever. What tips do you have for people on the airplane to, to stay healthy? I think one very important and unrecognized fact is the air handling systems in airplanes are actually very efficient at filtering and limiting the spread of infection. So people are very concerned about the possibility of acquiring some airborne infection on a plane. And in fact, a plane is one of the safer places to be in terms of not getting infections. Probably the most important problem on airplanes that people should be concerned about is developing phlebitis or blood clots in the legs. And the way the risk can be greatly decreased is to keep well hydrated, drink plenty of liquids, not so much alcohol, but other liquids, and to get up frequently to stretch, move around a little. I know that's not easy on some airplanes, but 
that's probably the most important thing to be concerned about with longer air flights. So I had a woman on a recent flight that was evangelical about smearing Vaseline inside your nose so you didn't pick up stuff. She was misunderstanding the problem, huh? Exactly, and I'm not sure that Vaseline would really help, except perhaps <laughs> to prevent dryness, but other oh, than there that, you go. not really. <laughs> but you do get dehydrated when you fly, and that phlebitis is a serious concern. Get up and walk around. Okay. Now, a lot of Americans are going to Europe. Is Europe completely tame now? Do people still get diarrhea in Europe? Are there any shot concerns for Europe? What's your uh, advice for European travel? Well, I would first distinguish um, Eastern Europe and Western Europe to some extent. Let's say Western Europe to start with. First of all, traveler's diarrhea can always be a concern, although it's more common in underdeveloped countries. Anytime your biologic clock gets messed up, anytime you may be anxious, not sleep adequately, etc., traveler's diarrhea certainly can occur. So that can be a concern anywhere. But the other important thing is to just use that as an opportunity to get up to date in the vaccines you need to be up to date in anyway. And one very important one is the tetanus vaccine. Anyone can fall, cut themselves, and preventing tetanus is extremely important. And one that a lot of us are sort of lax about, that being the influenza vaccine, certainly you don't have to go anywhere to get the flu. But mm -hmm. in flu season, using that as an opportunity is very important. Yeah, you don't want to waste 10 days of your vacation overcoming something that was avoidable like that. Exactly. And people don't appreciate, in the United States, 30,000 or so people a year die from the flu. So it may not just be hmm. an inconvenience. Wow. If we're considering Eastern Europe, Russia, Turkey, Egypt, Morocco, are those in a different category for precautions for health? Yes. For Eastern Europe, what I would add to that is hepatitis A. Now, hepatitis A is a type that's spread by contaminated food and water, uh, as opposed to B, which is blood and body fluids. As of 2006, hepatitis A became part of the childhood vaccines in the United States, but most of us haven't gotten that one. And wow. it is prevalent in Eastern Europe, and that's an important one to think of there. When we get into places like the others that you mentioned, Egypt, Morocco, Northern Africa there, there are some parts of these countries that there's risk for malaria, um, and that's dependent, again, on what parts of the countries the person is going to visit. And then for people who are going off the beaten track, there are some other things to think of, such as the typhoid vaccine. Okay. So this is a case where if you're going to someplace a little more exotic, you might want to drop into a travel medicine clinic or something in your city. But Europe is pretty much uh, common sense. Talk to your doctor before you go and just be up to date on your tetanus and so on. You mentioned malaria. What happens when you get malaria? And are there malaria shot resistant mosquitoes? Well, the first thing is, as you mentioned, malaria is spread by mosquitoes. And where malaria is present is very dependent on where that specific type of mosquito is present. And prevention of malaria involves medication rather than vaccine. And at least as important as the malaria prevention medication is appropriate use of insect repellents, which okay. not only can help prevent malaria, but can prevent a lot of other insect-borne illnesses. Does that include netting when you're going to sleep, when appropriate? Yes, it includes netting at night if the person is going to be in an unscreened area, especially because the mosquitoes mm -hmm. that spread malaria are much more active in the evening and night than during the day. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves at 877-333-7425, our email address, radio at ricksteves.com. And today we're talking with Dr. Edward Chapnick, who is the director of the Division of Infectious Diseases and the head of the Travel Medicine Program at Maimonides Medical Center in New York City. And we're talking about a lot of interesting and important topics. I want to remind you that the uh, Center for Disease Control of our government has a website, cdc.gov, and that's a good source for specifics on what's required in, in what region. And the International Association for Medical Assistance to Travelers, IAMAT.gov, Org, I-A-M-A-T, would be another good resource. And we'll have Dr. Chapnick's uh, own website at maimonidesmed.org on our website. We have Bob on the line in St. Louis, Missouri. Hi, Bob. Thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. 
question for the doctor. Yes, recently I read in the newspaper that TB has become widespread in parts of the far eastern uh, parts of Europe. Uh, and I guess my question would be, are there any serious concerns for us travelers as we uh, travel to the newly opened eastern countries, such as uh, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, and so on? Well, it is true that TB is more prevalent, well, not only in Eastern Europe, but in a lot of underdeveloped parts of the world. It also can be acquired right here in the United States. The only good thing about TB is usually to acquire it from someone who has it requires relatively close contact. So even on airplanes, it seems only people in the immediate area of the person who has it can acquire it. So the risk is small of getting TB, although it's real. Unfortunately, in the United States at least, there's not a lot of specific preventive measures that we use for TB. But because the risk is so small, I don't think it's something that should affect people's travel plans. So there's no uh, media precautions that a traveler could take then, really? Right. There's really not, because one can encounter someone with TB. There's a small chance of it, but one can encounter someone with TB anywhere. And if that person happens to be in close proximity to a person, it can be transmitted. And there's not a lot specifically you can do to prevent that. The only other fact that may help a little is that even people who acquire TB from someone who has it, there's only actually a 10% chance of ever getting sick from it. Hmm. So the risk is there, but it's not large. There you go, Bob. Okay, well, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for your call. And Lori's on the line in Palo Alto, California. Hi, Lori, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick, thanks for speaking with me. Yeah. So my question is, I'm off to South Africa, Botswana, and Zambia in September, and I heard you speaking about malaria. That's my big concern, and what sort of prophylactic drug I could take that would combat that, as well as using, of course, DEET products and proper clothing. The issue of using DEET as an insect repellent is very important. That goes on exposed skin. Mm -hmm. uh, the other one that is not as commonly used is called permethrin. Um, and that's one that gets sprayed on outer clothing. So the combination of DEET on exposed skin and permethrin on outer clothing is the most effective combination okay. of insect repellents. Now, in terms of malaria prevention, there are several medications available. The ones most commonly used, one is called Malarone, which is a pill that's taken once a day beginning a few days before leaving and throughout the trip, and then after returning. Mm -hmm. That is a commonly used medication. There's another one called mefloquin that's gotten what I think is some undeserved bad press. I have heard um, about it, about the strong possible side effects. Right, and the side effects from mefloquin, a lot of them involve psychiatric side effects, depression, anxiety, things like that. The mm -hmm. important thing to know is these occur almost exclusively in people who have some history of these problems. So certainly someone who has problems with depression, anxiety disorders, etc., I would not recommend this medication. But for people who haven't, it's very effective. It's safe in people without that kind of history, and it only needs to be taken once a week, so it's a little bit easier to do. So Is those it more are the effective? Two most commonly used. It's not more effective. It's equally effective. Okay, just a little bit more convenient. Correct. Okay. And then other vaccinations, would that include the typhoid uh, hepatitis A and B as well for that area of the world? Yes, it would certainly include hepatitis A. It would certainly include typhoid, updating tetanus immunity. That's the and one I get every 10 years, no problem. But the hepatitis A, I never thought about. That is, other than traveler's diarrhea, the most common travel-related illness is hepatitis A. Mm -hmm. Hepatitis B, many of us, um, it started to be given in the United States somewhere in the mid to late 1980s. Mm -hmm. So people who have already had the hepatitis B vaccine don't need it. Otherwise, that's one that's spread by blood and body fluids. So it's depending on 
the person's travel plans, depending on how long the person is going to be away. Hepatitis B is a sometimes one. Well, I figured you're never going to know when you're going to have to have a transfusion. <laughs> the longer the person's going to be away, the mm-hmm. more likely I'll be to say get the hepatitis B vaccine. The mm-hmm. other point is I have yet to have a traveler come and see me and say, I am planning to have sex on my trip. But we <laughs> certainly know that some people do, and that is how hepatitis B is spread. Right. Okay, Lori, thanks for your call. Thank you very much, Rick. Uh, yeah, Thank you, doctor. Travels. Good luck on your trip. Dr. Chapnick, um, is there some cases where medicines work on people who live in another country and are routinely prescribed to those people, but that could be bad medicine for Americans who are visiting and having to go to a local doctor? Um, I'm not aware of any specific medications that that's true. Um, However, it is important to realize that medications that are available in other countries may or may not have been subjected to the same approval process may have interactions with medications a person is already taking. Mm-hmm. So I'd certainly be cautious with that. Right. Do you think Americans often underestimate the quality of medical care in other countries? Uh, are you as an individual traveler likely to put off getting medical care in order to get back to the United States, or would you be comfortable getting local care? That would be very dependent on not only the country, but on what specific part of the country. The quality of medical care abroad is very, very variable. Hmm. Um, And I think it's really hard to generalize. So if you were in Europe, you would be comfortable going to a a clinic to get something fixed up? Correct. And I think it's important for travelers to realize that the best way to find out would be to contact the nearest U.S. consulate. They would have the best information on what medical care is available and where it is available in whatever area it may be. All right. We have Holger on the line in Tillamook, Oregon. Hi, Holger. How you doing, Rick? Great. Thanks for your call. What's your question for the doctor? Uh, yes, sir. I have one question. And In Europe and Greece and that, you know, they have a regular first aid stations for travelers and it doesn't cost them hardly anything. Now, in countries like Africa, do they have routine places where if you get a cut, you know, and you're not familiar with uh, what you came in contact with, do they have first aid stations or do you have to go to the hospital? In rural areas, there's often very limited access to any medical care. So the best advice I could give is to contact the nearest U.S. consulate because these routine travel first aid stations tend to be unavailable in underdeveloped countries. I've found in my travels that, you know, if you get in a jam, you you just go to the closest hospital and they've got an emergency ward that they'll take good care of a traveler and uh, you're in and out of there. Exactly. So, Doctor, this traveler's tummy, Deli Belly, Montezuma's Revenge, there's a name for it everywhere almost. It plagues travelers still. What's your rule of thumb for where you drink the water, where you have bottled water, best way to purify the water, and so on? All right. Well, the first thing is the World Health Organization has a very easy expression to remember. Peel it, boil it, cook it, or forget it, Uh, which is a good way to think of basic food and water safety. The peel it part means fresh fruits and vegetables, if you can peel it yourself, are fine. Uh, Otherwise, it's a good idea to stay away from them. In terms of water, A popular misconception is that all bottled waters are okay. Uh, That absolutely is not true because some bottled waters are not microfiltered, and the ones that aren't, there are certain types of infections that can be there. So it's very hard to know that by looking at the bottle. So a good thing to remember is if the water's been boiled, it's fine. If the water's carbonated, it's fine. I've heard that Coca-Cola products around the world, I hate to give them a plug, but uh, they're reliably bottled. That is correct. And even things like club soda or seltzer, the process Mm -hmm. of carbonating it eliminates most potential problems. In terms of water purification, there are tablets available that are useful for this. There are even now available little... um, ultraviolet light devices that you could stick in a glass of water and stir around, and that supposedly eliminates bacteria. Um, One other thing most people like to hear is that anything that has alcohol is okay. 
Wow. Um, any alcoholic beverages, that inactivates any of the things we're worried about. That's happy news. Okay, so if it's, carbo- if it's carbonated, if it's alcoholic, or if it's been actually boiled, it should be safe. Personally, one of my paranoias is rabies. And if a lot of times I see a scary-looking dog or monkey or cat on the road, and I get nervous about it. How concerned do we need to be about rabies, and, and what do we do if we're in sort of a questionable area as far as that concerns? Well, rabies is clearly a big concern because it's a disease that is almost always fatal, um, and there's really no treatment available for it. People who are going on trips where they're doing things that they know will involve contact with animals should get the rabies vaccine before. The pre-exposure rabies vaccine is easier to give, requires fewer shots, and is very effective. If there ever is an exposure, though, which means a bite or a scratch from an animal that is of a concern, getting to medical attention as soon as possible is really important because the vaccine and gamma globulin needs to be given to prevent disease. The final important point is people shouldn't be as afraid of the vaccines as they used to be. The currently available vaccine is really no worse than a flu shot or a hepatitis shot. It's not like those old vaccines. They used to be very painful and very difficult to give. That's not the case anymore. They used to stick you right in the stomach with it, I think. It sounded horrible. Now it's a (laughs) shot in the arm like anything else. I can handle that. Good news. Yes. I've been talking with Dr. Edward Chapnick, and he's the director of the Division of Infectious Diseases, head of the travel medicine program at Maimonides Medical Center in New York City. Dr. Chapnick, thanks a lot for being with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And I'm feeling good. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to our colleagues at KJZZ in Phoenix and at the Radio Foundation in Manhattan for their help today. There's more online, including listener feedback and archived audio on demand. It's in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. Join us again next time for Travel with Rick Steves. Rick's weekly one-hour radio program, Travel with Rick Steves, airs in more than 100 cities across the country. Listen to podcasts of past shows in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Rick's public television series, Rick Steves Europe, also airs throughout the USA. You'll find the latest on Rick's TV and radio work, as well as his guidebooks and his free-spirited European tour program at ricksteves.com.